Hi, everyone, and welcome to This is Growing Old, a podcast from the Alliance for Aging Research. I'm Sue Peshin, and I'm the president and CEO of the Alliance for Aging Research. The COVID-19 pandemic has been especially devastating for communities of color. Minority groups are more likely to get severely sick and die from COVID-19. Additionally, Black Americans are getting vaccinated at slower rates than whites. So here to talk about these disparities and how we can work to overcome them is Dr. Gary Puckran, President and CEO of the National Minority Equality Forum. Gary, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, Can you please, just for our listeners' sake, tell us the mission of the National Minority Equality Forum and what you've been up to in the last year as it's related to the COVID-19 pandemic? So our mission is really about reducing patient risk. You know, we started out uh, with a focus on eliminating health disparities. And as we got deeper into the effort and looking at data, what we realized that really what everybody expects when they come into the healthcare system that the healthcare system is going to reduce their risk for hospitalizations, for emergency room visits, for disability, for mortality while improving the quality of life. And it doesn't matter who you are. Uh, you know, that has to be the mission of the healthcare system. And so what we came to appreciate is that the conversation we were having was really about the broader healthcare system and making sure that it was treating everyone equitably. And that it was on its mission, right? Because no patient walks into the healthcare system expecting that the system is going to elevate their risk. And what we saw with COVID was really sort of a, a larger breakdown of mission, right? Uh, because part of, if you go back to the original contract, right? My, my uh, doctor's in history, so I always go back to the first principles. And what it said was conservation of life. We, we, we shortened it to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but the actual language was preservation of life. Uh, that's why we entered into the social contract. Uh, and sometimes that gets confused. Uh, people think that what we're really about is preserving an economic order, but that's not what yeah. we're about. What we're really about is preserving life, we want to make sure we do it so everyone can enjoy liberty and happiness. And what we saw during COVID is that that basic conversation about whether we are together to conserve life or uh, to conserve an economic system, many thought that we were really about conserving an economic issue. And, and they were quite willing to put people's lives at risk uh, in order to do that. And unfortunately, uh, minority populations, either because uh, they were essential workers and not just firemen and policemen, but uh, they worked in meatpacking uh, factories and uh, grocery stores and transportation systems uh, to keep those rolling, um, as well as you know the, the, the problem of access to quality care, elevated their risk in all kinds of ways. Um, and the society didn't do anything about it. It didn't, it didn't um, ramp up and say, uh, we have to be particularly careful for these lives because we're asking them to do um, unique things in the middle of a, of a pandemic. 
and so uh, we uh, uh, raised the alarm, uh, but did more than that. We started partnerships with federally qualified health systems, with CBOs around the country uh, to try to lower the risk uh, that we saw for uh, minority uh, populations. And uh, it, it was going on in a lot of different ways. So in April, uh, the National Minority Equality Forum announced the launch of its COVID-19 index, uh, a tool that's designed to prepare communities for future waves of coronavirus. Can you tell us a bit more about the tool and why it's so important? So the tool really came out as part of conversations that we were having with uh, FQHCs, Federally Qualified Health Systems, excuse the abbreviations, uh, around the country. And one of the things that we really appreciated is that the virus is actually a slow moving train when you think about it. Back in August, um, uh, scientists were, were projecting that by February, if we didn't do um, make changes, 500,000 people were going to die uh, from the virus. And sure enough, when we hit February, 500,000 people died. But what we didn't do was to show we're in small geographies down in zip codes and counties and congressional districts and state legislative districts where those viruses were going to surge. Um, so we didn't provide communities with the predictive analytics. It's almost like, um, you know, there's a, there's a hurricane coming and we know it's coming and we know where it's going to hit and we give you fair warning. So in this case, you wear your mask, later on you get vaccinated, and there are these therapeutics that if you unfortunately become positive with the virus, um, you have access to the therapeutics, so that people really understood uh, that you know, we could predict um, on where the virus is going to be, and we could mitigate a lot of that risk, and I think would have helped tremendously in the conversations about should I wear a mask or should I not wear a mask? But we didn't do that. And so what we decided to do was to put those predictive analytics together. We worked with the CBOs, and so we asked each of them, community-based organizations and FQHCs, uh, we asked them to give us the zip code of their service area. Um, so we mapped uh, their, um, uh, their zip codes on the map. Uh, we look for infusion centers in case uh, for the therapeutics, uh, uh, COVID therapeutics, in case they were positive. Uh, and um, we also provided them with predictions. Uh, so we predicted um, uh, where the virus was going to be surging or at least what the virus levels are going to be um, 30 days before they actually happen. Uh, and uh, this way, we empowered them with information that they could use uh, in their community. We felt the government should have done that really at the outset of the virus uh, because I think it would have helped tremendously as, if we had a good sense of where the virus was, was uh, surging. Uh, and that way we could have taken um, steps to avoid um, the virus in terms of mass wearing, but also would help us to figure out where we needed to put um, our interventions and, and tools, oxygen, PPEs and all that sort of thing uh, that could have helped out tremendously. Yeah, I I remember um, 
last year. I mean, on the CDC website, there is a whole toolkit about using by zip code. And we um, included that in some of the remarks we made to ASIP when they were talking about prioritization. And that was also a recommendation, I guess, from the National Academy of Medicine. I mean, I'm sure you worked on that and generated a lot of that. Um, but it didn't seem like anybody was listening to it, to your point. And it just blew me away. It just didn't come up in discussion. Uh, I, I'm sure you're not nearly as surprised about it as I was because you're, you know, you've been doing this a lot longer. Um, but it, it was really striking to me that um, we knew everybody in the public health world and working on COVID knew that this was happening in certain communities. There were um, there were spots that were identified, but it just wasn't being talked about. You know, some of it is, I think, what I would describe as old school. We, we, we think that we don't have the power to intervene, that, uh, you know, we have to be susceptible to the forces of nature and you know, we throw our heads up and run around the circle and, and not do what we can do, uh, which is to, to use our science to be very effective uh, and, and protect people, uh, which I think is really what the role of government is. And I thought it was a tremendous failing uh, that we didn't yes, do Yes, I agree. So the fact that, and you spoke to this a little bit already, but I just wanted you to, to detail it a little bit more. We, we know now, obviously, knew, knew throughout the pandemic as well, that people of color were making up a disproportionate, disproportionate number of de total deaths from COVID-19. Um, a lot of people older, too, but not necessarily uh, going to that 65 and older group because things were skewing a bit younger, right? right. So why, why, why was that the case? I think, I think you know, there are a lot of things that contributed. Um, you had multi-generational housing, um, and so the, the, the younger population was not wearing their masks, they're getting infected, uh, they're bringing it into the household, so that's one. Um, you had essential health workers um, who were working in critical positions that the society really needed them, effectively, to work in, uh, but they weren't getting the protection at work, and so uh, they were getting infected. Uh, you had the whole nursing home um, issue, and so, um, you, you know, there, there it was. We didn't use the therapeutics, or at least, um, you know, FDA approved emergency use authorizations uh, for a, a whole series of COVID therapeutics that would reduce hospitalizations um, and uh, emergency rooms. Uh, uh, and what happened is, the federal government bought all of those therapeutics, gave them to the states. The states didn't dis distribute them. So in those high-risk communities, we ended up without the infusion centers and the education to use those therapeutics. So lives got lost and people ended up in the hospital. And you saw the privileged folks. Trump got them. Rudy Giuliani got it. Chris Christie got them. Um, but... Uh, down in the community uh, where they really could have done some good, um, they were not available. So there were all of these different causes uh, that contributed uh, to what we saw as this disproportionate um, high rate of infection um, as well as mortality uh, in those communities. 
Mm-hmm. So now we're in the vaccine phase and seeing similar trends that Black Americans are getting vaccinated at a slower pace than whites. Why do you think the vaccination rate is lower among Blacks and how can we increase the vaccination rate? So again, it starts out with uh, what happened in the, in the beginning, right? Um, so when CDC re- released the guidance uh, for prioritizing who is going to get uh, vaccinated, um, you know, if you recall, it was 75 plus is where we uh, began with. Well, if you look at the age pyramid, um, African-Americans, many do not survive to the age 75. Even at 65, um, there's this disparity in, in life expectancy. And so lots of African-Americans uh, were not eligible uh, to receive uh, the vaccine. It's not that they were hesitant. It, it was by the way it was being distributed, uh, they were not available uh, to get the uh, to get the vaccine. And so um, uh, what it meant was we continued to expose them uh, without giving them access to the vaccine. And if you think about it, uh, if we had prioritized those communities where the vaccine, where the, where the virus um, was, was surging, particularly in those minority communities, and we got them vaccinated earlier, that would have helped the spread of the virus. Um, and Typically, a good uh, uh, epidemiologist uh, uh, would say to you, those are the communities where you want to go in and, and tamp down uh, the spread of the virus uh, by getting populations um, uh, uh, vaccinated. Uh, but we, ch- we chose a different metric. And so uh, part of what we saw is that minority populations uh, uh, did not get vaccinated early. And the, and the numbers kind of show that. It's not, you know, the lack of vaccination uh, is not due to hesitancy. And I think that's a really important point because I think it's something that's kind of been a um, piece of misinformation that's gotten spread that uh, while people just aren't getting it in the uh, Black community because they just don't want it. And I'm wondering if you can just unpack that a little bit more and maybe talk a bit more about the access issues. Yeah, so it is not unusual um, uh, in our healthcare system to blame the victim, to say the reason why you have poor outcomes is because the victim is misbehaving. Uh, And so that's kind of standard there. So what we saw was um, certainly the senior population, um, they were anxious to get vaccinated. Um, there are lots of, of uh, episodes around the country where those who were younger than 65 tried to get vaccinated and were, and were not allowed to. And what was intriguing is that uh, sites were placed in African-American communities, uh, but the younger population couldn't get it. But folks from outside the community who were eligible to get vaccinated would come many times for the first time into the minority community to get vaccinated. Now, there are some, I don't want to pretend like there were, there's no vaccine hesitancy um, in the minority community. Uh, some of the younger population 
We saw some of it uh -huh. in among healthcare workers. Uh, when we uh, started working with the FQHCs, some of their staff um, had um, some concerns about, um, about the vaccines. But they said that, that sort of dissipated um, as they started to administer the vaccine. And so by the time we got uh, into mid-March or so, all of that hesitancy among those workers um, sort of disappeared. Um, I think, quite honestly, when I look at the data, um, it's more in sort of um, majority communities where the vaccine hesitancy, particularly where you know, there's some politics in, in, mixed in it, uh, where the hesitancy is larger. Okay. Interesting. What do you mean by that with the politics? So, you know, there are some who believe that, um, you know, if you are Republican, you don't want to get vaccinated. I'm not sure why it's um, like that way, but uh, there, there are some who uh, have, for political reasons, uh, believe that they don't need the vaccine. Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, okay. Of course. <laughs> yes. Um, so what do you what do you take away from the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of what what you hope people have learned about healthcare disparities in the United States and how we can address those disparities? Well, you know, obviously it made visible uh, the disparities. Um, and my hope is that it leads us to reimagine our healthcare system. Let's let's think about this for a second. The modern American healthcare system really begins to take shape during World War II, when mm -hmm. um, employers could not induce workers through salaries, um, so they used uh, health insurance as a benefit uh, to, uh, you know, capture workers because obviously during the war, uh, workers were, were a scarce commodity, um, and. It, so it grew up in that period of segregation, of, of when inequalities were not frowned upon, but were accepted both by practice and by law. Uh, the, the hospital systems uh, were segregated and didn't get desegregated until the late 1960s, early 1970s. Uh, the American Medical Association did not stop discriminating until the 1970s and physicians, uh, many physicians um, in their practice would not uh, accept uh, minority populations. And so that legacy system still exists, right? I and mean, we got rid of the outward signs of segregation and the, the signs came down and the laws were removed, but the inequality and outcomes uh, that mm -hmm. existed during that period we're never dealt with. We're never, we're never really addressed. Um, and now what's happened is um, because of a growing um, uh, diversity in the political system, there's pressure being brought to bear um, to make sure that we have a more equitable um, uh, provisioning of health care. But I don't think you can do that in the existing system. I, I don't think it's mm -hmm. built to do that. And that's why... Uh, we talk about uh, managing patient risk because we think the future healthcare system, that's what it ought to really be about. It really ought to be about managing patient risk. Um, and if we focus on that, I think the inequalities will go away. I think 
Um, uh, it will energize our healthcare system because its purpose will be clear. Uh, and even more importantly, uh, we can get on with uh, looking for innovative therapies uh, that really reduce risk. And that's really where our future lies. Interesting. What is what is a system that looks at managing risk look like? Like what it what does that mean? What would happen when you went to the doctor? So you know, there's still a part of medicine that believes that medicine is an art, right? Uh, we're saying no, it's a science, uh, and that you can use the numbers not only uh, clinically to to improve risk. It's like think about it. You're going to Las Vegas. We're all, we're all subject to the same thing. Right? We're all at Las Vegas. Um, we, we don't get a choice. We got to play the game, right? And you want to go into the booth that gives you the best chance of, of winning. And the best chance of winning is by the science, right? Not the guy who's doing the art form over there. And guess what? There's going to be a lot of guys that can do magic. And that's it's entertaining, but that's not going to get you where you want to be, right? And you want to you want to do it by the science. Uh, it's measurable. Um, and that's the point. Uh, and so if we use the numbers, if we fly by instruments, um, we get better outcomes uh, for patients. And it drives the system. Right now, for example, is Medicare really being driven by the numbers? Is, is its purpose really to, to lower risk for beneficiaries? Absolutely not. Is the Medicare no. program being run to lower risk uh, for, the, for the 90 million people? that are now in the Medicare program? No. It, uh, even the employer-based system, is that really risk-driven? No, is the point. And so that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about reimagining. And we think that it will have a powerful impact because as we get invested in each other's health, as we are working mm -hmm. toward that end, that creates the common purpose that binds us. That goes back to that first mission of conserving life. That's the social contract. That's all we're doing is bringing the social contract into healthcare and saying, this is what we ought to be committed to. Okay. I like it. Um, so here's, I'm going to switch gears and ask you a question we ask all of our guests. Um, when you were a kid, what did you imagine growing older would be like? That's a great question. So. When I was a kid, um, it was Haley's Comet. Uh, was, you know, it comes around, I think, every 70 years, and, and I realized that I would be around, if I survived that long, uh, for a turn at Haley's Comet. And so that, that was my okay. great wish, to survive long enough to see Haley's Comet um, come by. Uh, it sounds like a good so thing to do, but yeah. Did you have, were you one of the kids with the telescope yeah, and you liked, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. you like stargazing. Yeah. Oh, That's absolutely. cool. One day I got to introduce you to my uncle. He is an astrophysicist oh, wow. and an astronomer. I love that. Um, and a lot of fun to talk yeah, to. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So what do you enjoy most about growing older now? So um, I'm on the, I, I think of growing old as being on the vanguard, right? Um, because uh, really what we're trying to do now is to push the boundaries of life expectancy. Um, and those of us who get old are at the vanguard. We are trying to move that frontier, not just for ourselves, 
but for the next generation. And, and that's what I think about. We don't want the next generation to have to deal with the issues uh, that we have to deal with. Uh, and that's the investment. That's the infrastructure building. Um, and that's the way to think about what we're investing in, in healthcare, because it is that older generation that needs the help, right? Because we are pushing back on, on those forces of nature, and the only way we can push back is through science and investment and the deep collaboration that it takes for all of us uh, to achieve those goals. So that, that's what I think about as I grow up. That's awesome. I love it. All right. And we get to be partners on some things, which I really enjoy. Well, that's it. Um, Gary, <laughs> Gary, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's fun. Absolutely. Good. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening to This Is Growing Old. Our intro and outro music is City Sunshine by Kevin McLeod. Please stay tuned for new episodes every other Wednesday. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. And please rate and review us if you're enjoying this show. Thank you for listening to This Is Growing Old and have a great day.